Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith. And this week I'm virtually in Birmingham with chef Brad Carter, whose book Staff is a story of his journey through DJing and all-night raves to his Michelin-starred restaurant, Carter's of Mosley. So music was always a massive thing for me and obviously the explosion of the, the rave scene was, was what I was part of. So it's this new sound, we're all swapping tapes, listening to the music going where can we go to this where can we find this and getting with the older lads in the getting in their cars and, and, and driving to these fields and whatnot now brad carter is my kind of chef he's a champion of food from the land and the producers whose farming integrity is part of the story he puts on the plate and it's not all for show his book is called staff and the recipes are not what impressed the critics but what he feeds his team in the kitchen his family i asked him why um, it was, it's quite an interesting story. The publisher, um, he came to eat at my restaurant and, um, he was, he came and had the full experience. And then, uh, he said, oh, you, I think you should do a book. Your food's so interesting, different. Um, I haven't sort of come through the ranks of, of all the, uh, the way a normal Michelin starred chef does, you know, they go and work for all the, the well-known, um, you know, amazing cooks yeah. get a little bit of their style, uh, have the fallback of, of their, uh, their, their technique. Uh, I've actually ground it out myself and, and, uh, it, it makes my style unique and, and makes people, it makes me stick out. So like, he came to eat and then said, I think you should, you should, you should do a book. And I said, um, uh, I actually do want to do a book, but it's not of the restaurant. And the reason, the reason I wanted to do staff is, uh, there was a really, it, it was a really good time where uh, the restaurant was was all. It, it's always had that in its DNA. It's always had the staff meal, and I'll go more into that later. Uh, but it was at a time where we had, where the team was really, really t- like like we always go through different teams, and they were really young, and and, and everyone was quite together, like family like. And I, I have swore to the publisher that one day I will do a book that is the restaurant, but. Because I'm a young chef and I'm in my kitchen every day, it's open. I'm still evolving. Every time I go in there, something new happens. And I just don't feel like that was the right time in my career to do the end of days recipe book for the restaurant. I, f- I feel like it changes, you know, week by week, day by day. Yeah, I love that bit where you say, you know, a book is like the greatest hits. It's like something you write at the end of yeah. your career, you know, the great, wonderful memories of and how I got to now and all yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff. And it's not that at all, is it? It's bursting with flavour and attitude and f- you use font to really kind of big up uh, what you want to say. And it, it just reeks of your story. But that's what's so interesting. It reeks of, of you and the people who have made you you. And we'll talk a little bit about your background before we go into your four food moments. When you talk about not going through all the normal stage, that's absolutely the story, isn't it? You've always loved food. You were great at it at school. And I want to talk about cooking at school. Really important. But you were much more into rave culture and dance and and being up all night. And you're quite open about the recreational drugs that you used to take and, and that whole world, which is is very chefy, actually. A lot of chefs uh, do talk about that as, uh, you know, yeah. sort of background to their adrenaline filled lives. Give us a flavour of Brad, aged 16. 
Uh, I don't know. Um, at, least, at least we're not on TV. I can I can go into this a little bit more. <laughs> um, <laughs> the glory of the podcast. So when I was when I was at um, school, uh, school for me was was difficult because I don't think very linear. So it's like I don't learn in that in that kind of way. Um, so everything creative flicked on a switch, um, and I always. Uh, if someone asks me a straight question now uh, about accounts, I still think about how I can do it in a cool way or how I become out the front lunk or it's just the way that my, my brain works and at school you know in the 90s uh the early 90s there was um there wasn't a lot of uh there wasn't very the teachers wasn't up to date with what kids could be how, how they could be learning where it was all you were just naughty if you weren't playing doing the system um, so music was always a massive thing for me, and obviously the explosion of the the, the youth culture movement of the dan- the rave scene was was what I was part of. So it's this new sound. We're all swapping tapes, listening to the music, going where can we go to this? Where can we find this? And getting with the older lads in the, getting in their cars and, and, and driving to these fields and whatnot. And uh, yeah, it's a massive and DJing. Yeah, I mean you were DJing. Uh, yeah, yeah I did. We did got I got into it quite. Uh, further down the line in working in it as well um, it was mainly to save my bacon though to be fair because I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to keep going every weekend and spending a week out of action uh, so it was uh, mainly just to stay connected to the music and uh, find a way of earning you know and living through it uh, and then obviously cooking was it, it was happening at the same time but a slower rate so I, I went to work at the Billsley pub because I left school a little bit early because it wasn't for me. Um, and I went to work at this pub, which is local, local to my, where I live, uh, as a kitchen porter. Uh, and then um, one day I just um, I got asked to help out on the grill. So it was pretty standard stuff, you know, two for one. But I've just... It's the energy, the open space of the kitchen and, like, the fact that I'm not penned into a... I don't have to just learn like I had to learn the system so like I don't have to face a blackboard and learn in that way the, the kitchen feels like an open space you've, if you've got an opinion and you've got a creative thing it's never going to be the wrong thing to say there always might be a way to use it so then all of a sudden kitchen felt comfortable to me um, and then from there obviously I went on to actually take it more seriously and go to college and stuff yeah well go I just want to take you back to the classroom for a moment because I hear the story about the kind of the non-linear brain from so many chefs who were diagnosed later with ADHD loads with dyslexia the kitchen is a fantastic place particularly for a young lad often with ADHD and with dyslexia did you suffer from any of those yeah um definitely a lot was not diagnosed um but definitely I still have things now where um, where I would, it, it will affect me. Um, right, I'm actually doing a project at the moment to give back to the kids with uh, ADHD at the youth centre. Uh, I think, yeah. I think it's the more that, um, the more that I think back, the more definitely it was, uh, it was affecting me in, in that way, really. Yeah, and of course the teachers, they what they see is a is a somebody who can't sit still yeah. and who's who's not concentrating, and they tell them off. Yeah. They put them down. They put them in different groups to learn with kids with, yeah. you know, learning difficulties, and and so it goes on. But 
taking you back to that classroom, did, did you have a teacher who spotted something in you or was it just that moment where you're in front of food and you have that creative outlet? It was quite weird that um, obviously I chose it as an option. So when you have to choose an option and not, none of my friends did and that wasn't the pattern that I normally did, I took. It was always... Like I was, a, I've always been like you know the, the unity. The fr- my friends were my, my everything, and and I would always do what they were going to do, despite of. I always thought if I like it, I'm going to be good at it. So I'd always choose what what I liked to do with them, uh, and then cooking. None of them chose it, but I did, yeah. uh, and it, a bit of it came from I had to sort of look after my mum because uh, she had three jobs. So I used to at least make her something and leave it in the house when I went out and she came home. So it, it became like this necessity and like skill that I needed to do something. So I thought, ah, oh, I, need, I need to be able to le- know how to do this. Yeah. And then at school, I chose it. And to be honest, like the teacher's been to eat at the restaurant not, not too long ago, a couple of years back. And uh, I, I probably at the time, no, I didn't think, no, she didn't pick me out as anything. But I think she's probably... She probably did, in a way. Thinking back, she probably thought, oh, he's quite good at this. I need to, I need to try and help, help him yeah. get into this. Yeah. Because I had no distraction of friends, and, and obviously I chose to do it. I was keen. You know, I'd go into the class, and I was like, whether I was making a fairy cake or I was making a 10-course meal yeah. like I do now, yeah. it's like I was interested in it. So I had a lot of time to give, and I wanted to know everything about it. I've got this obsessiveness over things, uh, and like, if I get even down to like, I get into a brand and I want to know who created it, everything, you know, and that's kind of what I've always been like and definitely what I'm like with my food as well. Yeah, and that's what the book is all about. And your full food moments really go deeply, deeply into where food comes from uh, to the producers who are so brilliant at, at making the best uh, of what they've got. I imagine that you were taught that at school. You know, imagine that you were taught about local producers, the impact on the soil, the impact on climate change, all of that at school. You'd have exploded, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Let's go into your first food moment. After the raving, you you were given an opportunity to go to Menorca and that changed everything. Was it just the living off the land, the lemon trees in the garden, the, the freshness of the products? What was it? After, obviously, that was my first actual job uh, paid to, to, apart from the pub that I was working at when I was at college, when I started college, uh, where I actually went and I had, there was an expectation of me as a chef. So it was like, I, I felt like I, I still, when I, when I t- talk and think about it now, it was like, I, I am actually doing this for a job now. I've chose this and, and I, I felt that kind of pressure in a way. Even though I was still young and a little bit stupid, I still had this. Uh, feeling of like I'm going here and I've got to impress these guys you know they've given me a job and I'm leaving my mum uh, she's at home and and I'm going to live in this another another country Uh, it was an amazing moment um, and I still go back there every year for a holiday now Uh, it's uh, I'd love to end up I'd love to end up living there Mm -hmm. Uh, I think for me that place is um it's for one it's you know a, a a, a Brit loves Spain, you know. We we love Spain. It's we've got this little sort of spiritual connection to Spain, but it's unspoiled Spain. So you know, it's really traditional. There's no sort of like 
burgers and chips, you know, they do their thing and they do they they live their life the way that, that they intended and you join in or you don't. And that's what I really loved about it there. There's a couple of things that have really stuck with me now uh, because obviously not having this training. Uh, I've, I went there, first tried uh, like cured meat, so like serrano, ham and stuff like that. And, and now I make my own in the restaurant out of British animals. And, uh, and for me, that, that little moments like that, I'd never tried it before because obviously... If I wasn't a chef, I'd be eating kebabs every night because of where I grew up. You know, it's just I, I just wouldn't be into the things that I'm into. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't have tried Serrano ham at home. Yeah. It just wouldn't have been something we'd have had. And then I tried it there, and it's like, oh, my God, how have they done that? And then I start to learn about the pro. Then I went to caves where the charcuterie is, uh, and it's like, then it just stuck and stuck. And I always wanted to create my own. And I think, like... The, the feeling of I worked for an English family so it made it a little bit easier to get on uh, and, and progress a bit uh, and I, I've been in touch with them you know I try and keep in touch with them as much as possible they live back here now uh, and they had young kids at the time and it was like you just felt part of this family and you, you were adding to their cause you know they had this really busy restaurant six months in the year and we we went and we were the support and we used to go to the market uh, every morning, buy the produce, take it back, prepare it, have a siesta uh, standard, and then go back for dinner service and sell it all out and do it all over again. Yeah. And we did that for six months and then six months uh, pre- prepped for the next summer. Yeah. So it's pretty pretty amazing. Food as it's meant to be. And food in most countries, how it is. Um, yeah. It hadn't been in Britain. It was such a big change for you. Um, you yeah. presumably you hadn't grown up like that particularly you know around nah. Birmingham it wasn't big food culture in Birmingham um, it is now uh, it blew your mind and did it make you want to come back and just spread that message you're so keen you're so enthusiastic about what you find aren't you you kind of just want to show everyone and feed everyone yeah. and get everyone <laughs> infused with what you do similar to the music actually I mean that's what a DJ yeah. does doesn't it a DJ yeah. kind of you know plays people it's like a conductor as you know Dan Barber talks about the chef as the conductor yeah, yeah. it's like if I, I'm, uh, if I'm passionate I think I feel like if I tell 10 people two of them will probably do the same as me uh, and I think the more that you talk about it the better and um, like you say you know it's, it's food as it intended unfortunately we've been tarred with a, f- a couple of the wrong things in the UK now and uh, you know there's a, there's a few things that are going to change again no doubt uh, but it's it's being aware of what's good and what's bad and making your own decisions and actually um, you know it's not more expensive to eat better food it's just a different vision and it takes a little bit more planning and ta- and you, you have to be you have to be invested in, in what it is uh, unfortunately, when there's other things around that are not as good. Yeah. Well, so let's explain, explore that. Your four food moments are pretty much all about where food comes from. I mean, the first one, Paddock Farm. You've chosen the soup and sausage roll. Really simple recipe from, from the staff menu. But it's all about the producer. Tell us about the producers. So um, the Paddock Farm themselves are just one of... Uh, basically, in the restaurant, there's there's... 16 to 20 individual suppliers for their specialist ingredients so we've got uh, a truffle guy just for them we've got mushroom girls just for the mushrooms grown specifically for us we've got uh the the guys down in cornwall for the dairy lamb 
We've got uh, dairy beef up in Callan in Scotland. So everything is specific. And Paddock Farm is the pork that we use. So that they raise Tamworth pigs. Uh, the boys have an amazing story as well. So they started with one pig for themselves, their farmer's children. Uh, they bought a, a sow and she had 16 piglets and they were going to eat her. So they were left with all these piglets. So they started dishing them out to their friends at the, um, the pubs and stuff. They, they bought them up and then they ate them and they said, this is the best meat I've ever tried in my life. This pork, what is it? So the Tamworth is a cross between a forest pig and um, you know, an, old, an, an old-fashioned uh, British pig. Um, and it's um, it got the ginger hair, lovely amount of fat, so fifty fifty to meat, um, and actually the perfect eating. Uh, and then they thought there's a bit of a business in this. It's really good pork. So about eleven, twelve years ago, uh, they bought me some down. Um, I tried it, and I was I've literally never eaten any any of the pork since. I don't think um, just by choice. And the extensive farming adds to the taste. Can you explain to anyone who still doesn't understand the relationship between high welfare meat and taste? Because obviously high welfare it has a huge impact on soil health, um, but it, and it's brilliant for redressing the, the, the balance of the climate. But for you as a chef, it all comes together on the plate, doesn't it? Why does it taste so much better? Um, obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of buzzwords used in in, in bigger corporations and stuff now, like free range, blah, blah, blah. but this is this is the ultimate version of it. So that, you know, these pigs have they have more land than we do to live in. So that's one thing. You know, as an it, it doesn't feel it doesn't ever feel under pressure. It lives where it lives, and it feels it feels happy. Uh, the feed is important, so they understand where they are. In the, in the country uh, geographically they understand what the pigs like to eat what they what they shouldn't be eating uh, they have like uh, this this enhances the flavor of the meat and the fat because when you're eating an animal that the fat's intended to be eaten which is what the farmers do they put a lot of effort into creating the fat as it's it, the butchers call it white lean because it's white muscle to them it's it's part it's intended to be eaten we don't cut fat off we eat it along with the meat it gives flavor so the feed will contribute to the flavor of the fat so you know there'll be some rape uh mash in there like all the rape greens left over from the 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 farms uh the i know the boys collect um spent grains from the breweries uh because the pigs love it and it gives the it gives the fat like an even nuttier creamier taste yeah. um so we're, we're along the lines of like an Iberico pig, but in a, in a different uh, part of the world where we don't bless with all these acorn mountains. So, but we've got a, a similar thing. So that's, that, that, that feed is so important. The length of time the animal is alive because obviously the, the meat has longer to grow, longer to create flavour. So slower, slower grown meat, uh, how it was intended to, to, to you know, yeah. to grow. And no is, Amazon rainforests have been decimated in the making of these pigs. Exactly, and like you know, I think more and more and more, the more people try it and talk about it, more and more and more people are are invested in it, and 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 they want to they want to be a part of it, you know. You know, and that high welfare you can actually taste on the plate, can't you? I mean, you compare that with a factory farmed pig, and oh my goodness, you can. I, I personally, well, I don't eat factory farmed pig, but I would be. I know that I would taste the, you know, the pain and suffering of of that pig. Yeah, one hundred percent. And also, like, uh, there's things like so many different things and factors that change what it is. So, like, you know, we wouldn't eat the males because 
they don't they don't kill the males because they have more testosterone. So when you cook the uh, uh, lesser quality, uh, all the testosterone comes out the meat, and you can taste it. it. Almost tastes really really sour. So like these are things that these factories don't care about. They just want volume, and that's it's down to anything. You know, volume. There's no quality control. And what these guys do, they treat every pig like a member of their family. And like the, the sausage roll is such a good example of their meat, believe it or not, because it's 50 fat, 50 meat. We, use, we have half pigs or whole pigs and turn them into charcuterie and turn them into a prime cuts for the... In the summer, we have a pork dish where we use a, a part of the neck and we smoke it over wood and charcoal from the same woods. Uh, and... Um, for us to use that part of the, the muscle for them is good because it's, we can use a lot of that, the, the cuts that people don't want. Um, and if the, sus, the sausage roll is like so, such a good uh, definition of their meat because it's 50 fat and uh, uh, meat. It goes into the pastry and the pastry absorbs all of that amazing fat. And it's like, I, I can't believe we ever had a slice of bread with soup before where we can have a sausage roll to dunk in it. <laughs> It's like a, a staff favourite, that is. Genius idea. Your second food moment is also about producers. Um, this is about the chicken. Um, you t- use the Chinatown chicken pie as an example of it, but it's ultimately, it's all about Caldecott Farm. Again, you know, y- you talk about Rob, the producer. It's all about that story. Tell us about chicken. Yeah. It's um, the, the the chicken, again, it's... it's um, w- we take the, what we said about the pork, the chicken, the beef, everything, and it's just multiplied by how, whatever meat we use because the, every single person is in line and, and does exactly the same. Like farming, uh, have the same passion, have the same vision. So every single person we work with, that they kind of not, not have to pass the test, but we know just by speaking to them, talking to them, it's a common ground. We know every single one by name. We go and visit every single person we work with. And Rob's no different. Uh, Rob's, Rob's has, I've been working with as long as the pork. And I'm just so lucky that he, he's literally in Birmingham. So he's like 10 minutes away, but it's prob- yeah. probably the best uh, bird in the UK. Uh, yeah. Now, explain what makes a great bird for you. Um, for, for, the, for the bird, he raises it to the Cotswold White, so it's a rare breed. So there's not many, many of them left anyway. Uh, he ra- he ra- rears the chicken uh, for the longest amount of time so they have huge uh bat legs huge legs um yeah. big muscle structure really dark red meat so that actually if you to highlight when you when you um were to prepare a side of lamb or beef you would isolate individual muscles like separate the muscles the chicken's legs are that big you can actually do that uh, yeah, you can... the bones have had time to grow properly. Yeah. The marrow has has got time yeah. to grow properly. You know that's the the issue with the the slow grown chicken can you know can last sixty three days. So that's what Rob he most of his are sixty three days. Yeah, yeah, a minimum. And actually, we can take when it comes to special occasions. You know, like Christmas time, he'll say, "I'll oh, do some," he'll do some big ones, and you know, like he, he, he's he's got full control over what he does. And uh, yeah, the, the the anyone I give that chicken to. So literally says that's how chicken used to taste yeah uh, of my mom especially uh, she'll be like can i have one of them really nice chickens because and i love that because that's what meat should be it should be yeah. you know we used to have it twice a week because it was a it was a luxury item you know it was yeah. we we treated it like with respect we didn't eat meat all day every day 
So when my mum says, can I have one of them special chickens, that sums it up. It's like you're looking forward to chicken, whereas a lot of people don't now. They're just, it's an everyday snacking item when it's, it shouldn't be. And again, you can taste, I would taste the suffering on the plate. I'm sure you would, you know, if you've got a, a fast-grown chicken that's broken its own legs because it hasn't had time to grow the bones yeah. strongly enough to yeah. hold itself up. I mean, it's heartbreaking. We won't go there. Yeah. We're going to whisk <laughs> on to uh, we'll do the opposite. Full... We'll do the opposite. Well, exactly. Your third food moment is all about the the staff and, and it's about you taking over instagram with your staff dinners and this is why you wrote the book I and mean, you've had such a huge recognition of what you're doing on instagram tell us a little bit about that what made you decide to do that I think the staff book came about um we were it, years and years ago we've, we've always had the staff meal so the reason i started a staff meal is my experience in restaurants staff meal was was really pretty much like dire uh it was the same stuff it was beige and fried it was like you know there's a place for it but not every day and it was like the afterthought and i thought i always used to think when i was younger this is really really weird because they expect us to work so hard and long and all day but we're we're doing really nice food but it's not we're not getting nice food and that's to me that wasn't making any sense and I was like, everyone I spoke to was like, oh, I'm not having staff, it's like this or that. And it was, there was just no effort. And I just thought, this, this is not right. This is definitely not right. So when, when I had the chance to have my own place, it, it, it was the most important thing was to have a nice tasting meal for everyone at the same time. Because we're all there together, we're all working together. And we should all be eating, you know, good food. So the book, the book has come off the back of us doing what, you know, an everyday thing, just eating a staff dinner together. And um, it's, it's obviously evolved over the years, but the, the, the DNA of it is that we'd have staff meal um, and we started to just take a snap of it each day because it was so good, you know. It was like we weren't messing about. It was nice food. It was actually really, really good food. So we'd take a snap and then we just started to put it on our uh, Facebook and Instagram, just, you know, probably like 2014-ish so we started putting it up as a picture and loads of, you know, loads of people were acknowledging it and looking and going, oh, that's, that's amazing, is that your staff dinner? And then just use a staff dinner hashtag. And um, we literally just kept doing it. And then we started, to, we're like, why don't we just document the steps as we're going through? So it's kind of like a really, really fast cookery school, like, you know, show people how to make dinner. So then we were just taking a few shots of whisking the mayonnaise or, or you know, rubbing the chicken in, in, in uh, some, some spices or whatever, putting it in the oven. And uh, it blew up. We literally had, like, a couple of thousand people, like, loads of comments to go through. And, and uh, I was like, this is, this is actually amazing. Uh, and then we started getting really serious with it. So we were like, this is, a, this is another part of what we do now because we saw the, the, how, how people were interacting with it and how it was really inspiring them. So we, we saw a bit of a responsibility with it then. So then we, all the chefs take turns to, to cook each day we're open. So on a Saturday when we do the lists for the restaurant, we all take a day and we all tell, each, tell uh, me what we're going to cook. And then I, I do one as well. And then we all order our stuff and then that's our day to cook for the family, basically. Uh, you have to document all the steps. And as we were doing it and doing it, you know, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and, and we started you know, doing doing it every day and then one day i remember i went to michelin awards um and they're good my good mates now 
So I call them the Bristol Lut. So it's like Josh from The Pony, uh, Peter from Casimir. Uh, so I was walking past and they stopped me and they went, oh my God, you're staff master. You're the, uh, I, w- I really wanted to meet you today. This is about 2016 or something. They're like, I really wanted to meet you today. That staff dinner thing you've done is unbelievable. It's what we all do. Eh? And you've just elevated it and showed that like, it's, it's just amazing. No one else can do it. It's so unique. And I was just, that's when it's kind of sunk in. And they're all my good mates now. But yeah. it just. And you know, what's really interesting about Instagram is it kind of shows off the changing face of British food culture. You know, all over the world. The thing about Instagram is it connects all these different people interested in food and chefs from all over the world. You know, I was talking to somebody who's borrowing ideas from Japanese chefs. Yeah. But. But actually what you're doing is you're showcasing and you're making a story. You're joining the dots of all these different practices in British food culture and showing it off to the exactly. world. It's terribly important, isn't it? I think, like, the, a good thing for us is that, obviously, where we are in Birmingham, we're, we're, quite, we're doing a quite a unique thing. And um, it's quite... Um, there's a smaller percentage of people who would be interested in coming to eat. Obviously, we try and... it's accessible to everyone but we try and make it it's obviously very specific what we do but what the staff dinner's done is unlock us to a completely different audience so uh, another story about it i was uh walking through the gym and this young lad uh come to stop me and he he tapped me on the shoulder he's like are you that chef from up the road and i said uh yeah it depends who's asking and uh he said he said uh oh i think i follow your staff dinner every day on a, a on the online, I said, "Oh, great! Do you like it?" He said, "He said, mate, I literally all I want to do is eat that." He said, "But <laughs> he said, I'm not interested in your restaurant or anything. I've just got into your staff dinner, and it's amazing. It makes want to learn how to cook." And I took from that, like you know, that's like a young lad who's not interested mm-hmm. in the restaurant whatsoever, but he's yeah. it's getting him thinking about what he's eating, food, and 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 for me, that's like it's a completely separate. If you look at it like a business, it's a separate business. Uh, it's it's more than that brad you know to influence people to eat properly you know to be interested in the the produce i mean it that is how to eat to save the planet yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what influence really is let's finish with your last food moment sticky toffee pudding (laughs) great old british dessert why did you choose this and what's so special about yours ah so i chose this because uh this is a good one because um i did the book first i did the first edition of the book and uh i'd never put it in there and i literally kicked myself for weeks like i was so gutted i was like why didn't i put that in there because it's got such a good meaning i it's obviously the staff love it i love it it's my favorite dessert um, and we're, all we do is the, we do the British thing here. Um, and I hadn't put it in the book and I was really, really upset about it. And then I had this chance to do an extended version. It was the, fir- it was the top of the list, the first one going in. And um, the, the, the meaning behind it is like, obviously we wanted to do, years ago, the restaurants progressed over time and we've got to where we've got. Um, but... We, we started off doing an amazing Sunday lunch and it, we've kind of got a name for it. You know, if a good British restaurant doing a sun, good Sunday lunch, people are going to travel and they're going to come and eat there. And I just wanted to get this, I wanted to do something different with the, with the dessert and I rack in my brains and I just woke up in the middle of like one night, like three o'clock and I was like, those tins that I keep throwing away, I'm going to try and cook it in one. So I basically uh, made, made the batter and then I, put, I leave some of this, the sauce in the bottom of the tin 
pipe the batter in. I mean, it's a, it's a good old portion, you know, it's a free course only. You can only eat it after two courses. And then we pipe the batter into the, into the tin and then cook it in the tin. So it's like 25 to half an hour in the tin, 180 in the oven. And it rises up in the tin and the sauce is underneath. Uh, and we did it. I've put a scoop of ice cream on it. And I just, I'll remember my sous chef Pete's face the first time he tried it. And we were a bit younger. And he literally was like, he was, he was gone. He was floating off to another dimension, he was. And uh, I was like, this is, this is perfect. This is exactly what we wanted. And uh, it became quite iconic in the restaurant. You know, like people were booking on the phone, asking to if the sticky toffee was on. We were getting like Japanese uh, tourists come to the restaurant and point at it on their phones. And like, it's just one of them things. It's just, it's, I've got such a good connection because it's like, it takes me back to the early days of the restaurant where it was a different place to what it is now. Uh, not, not, not any of the thoughts and, and process and DNA, just how old and mature it was as a restaurant. And, and obviously it's getting older and, and, and more mature now because we've been doing it for so long and I'm, I'm getting more mature as a chef. But it's just got a really poignant time for me it, it, at the restaurant. And I, every time I look at it, it just makes me smile. Yeah. It's a fantastic story. Last question. Um, you started off finding a way for your busy, non-linear brain to just find its own way through total creativity, total ability to go whichever way you wanted to do it michelin how restricting is it since you got your star i've actually not not found it restricting really at all i think the the reason for that is i went out to my, my goal was to open a business that was my own and like and holly my partner and for us to live and work in our own environment and, and sort of because I'd never kind of worked in a Michelin restaurant or anything like that, I hadn't ever thought, oh, that was a thing that I was going to achieve or wanted. So well, the way that I've done it and the way that I've, I've built the restaurant is on my, on my terms and it's my food and exactly what I wanted to be doing. Um, so that's come along like an Oscar. So these guys are absolutely amazing. And that, in some respects, they've changed kind of and they put me on a different platform. And, like, it's, it's been incredible. But at the same time, if you sp- stripped it all back, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. And it hasn't, it hasn't changed anything in that way at all. And it, it's only given me more confidence to say, right, I'm not going to hold back on that. I'm going to... If they think it's good enough as it is, imagine where I can take it. That's kind of how my brain works. <laughs> so it's like... Um, to be... T- it's just, uh, you know, it's a stamp of approval from them saying your food's... You know, world class. Let, let, let's, let's face it; that's what the award is, uh, and um, it's made me want to make it even better and better. And I, I, eventually, I'd like to look back and think that I, I changed so many lives in, in so many ways. You know, the staff book is is a good example of that. But also bring um, a world. I'd love Birmingham to be known to have a world class restaurant. You know, I think that's the that's the dream of mine, um, and that just comes with time, work, and no pressure, and you just you just keep that dedication high, keep that energy high and uh, just stay focused and do what I'm doing, really. Thanks for listening. You can buy staff and all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. Next week, we're basking in the sunshine of Theo Randall's Italian memories as we talk through the four food moments from his new book, The Italian Deli Cookbook. I'll see you then.